Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday morning mailbag edition. <sighs> Again, I made a mistake on Friday. My co-host, the estimable Andrew Page, <laughs> is apparently the managing director and founder of strawman.com, and I didn't ask him what it was, and it's bugged me all weekend. Andrew? I bet it has. What is Strawman? <laughs> uh, we're a private online investment club. Oh, of course you are. Of course you are. And that's good to know. Motley Fool, of course, is the company I work for, which provides uh, investment advice and recommendations for retail investors like you who are listening to this podcast now. Uh, Two of the very, very best, the two very best uh, services in the world. In the universe. Can uh, I just say quietly, I really dislike the term retail investors. Yeah, I know. What's the better word? What's the better way to put it though, right? Because it's different. How do we differentiate us from the top end of town? Hate the term top. Yeah, uh, um, I, I don't. I don't know. Re- yeah. Something about retail. It, it's it's almost I prerogative. Know. Yeah. Uh, um, it's, yeah. Pejorative. Yeah. Sorry, pejorative. It, it's it's. Yep, yep, yep. You know, are you I used to retail? You. I can't. Yeah, I can't yeah, place yeah. my finger on it. But it's it's one of these terms that just really bugs me. Actually, while we're on a roll, here's another thing that's been driving <laughs> me crazy lately. <laughs> Welcome to the and another thing podcast. <laughs> Every news story that I've watched in the last few yep. months, it's it's the yep. cost of living pressure. Mm. At a point in time, we used to say prices are higher. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to use the word inflation, yeah. right? Like yeah. higher yeah. prices. Yeah. Yeah. How are yeah. households dealing with higher prices? No, 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 no. How are, how are households dealing with cost of living pressures? Like cost- Even households though, mate. That's, kind of like re- that's, that's the know, retail investor word just, for, for just, the rest of us, right? It sounds People. cleverer Most or something. Yeah, totally, totally. You know, cost of living like i have to pay for every beat of the heart or (laughs) drawer of the breath or give me a break and if we're talking about just living then maybe you only want to have a basket of goods that is like purely just food (laughs) medicine and housing okay it's higher prices Uh, it's higher it's 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 almost as bad as is housing ladder or you know so funny god damn it journalists love it love it love it uh, yeah, I think. Well, that's, and do you know the problem with cliches is they kind of they, they mean something until they don't anymore. Mm, yeah, and it's kind of all those words, and it's even the words that. And I'm not going to go through them, but it's the words that become pejorative that were actually just descriptive words at one point, yeah. and then get used as criticism. So we change, we find a new word to describe the same thing yeah. that's therefore less pejorative until it becomes pejorative itself, and we find a new word yeah. to replace the old word that replaced the old word that was actually descriptive at one point, and on and on we go. Um, it's I don't know, like it's appropriate and it's okay. I don't know. <sighs> I think what I I don't I hate the word retail I hate the phrase retail investors too and I use it because I think it's the least worst it's just, way to it's describe the, it the way that's it's the term that is used yeah because I think if you say investors then it's like oh no I'm not an investor those people over there you know Scott and Andrew they do it for job they're the investors mm. or the people who work at the fund manager they're the they're investors um, you know or or even just you know who's it for well even if we're all investors. Mm. You know, Buffett and I, unfortunately, are very different people. And we're not even that different, actually. Buffett's more like like you and I, mate, than that he is like the fund managers who paper trade and do all that stuff they do, you know, day in, day out. So it's even that too. I don't know. I don't know. I, I absolutely Private agree. Investors? I take your point. Private investors? <sighs> Maybe. I hate yeah, the term. Yeah. Here we go. Sophisticated investor. Oh, that one drives me bananas. Isn't that annoying? And and like for those that haven't heard that, it's actually a it's a it's a formal classification. Yes, and yeah, it, it's, it, not, it's not descriptive. It's a, it's a legislative term. Oh, the, yeah. yeah, there are. So I, I you yeah. know there are sophisticated investors out there, but <laughs> to be formally classed as a sophisticated investor just means rich investor. <laughs> Yes, that's, correct. You've got a certain level of cash. Uh, that's and not even that rich in a relative sense, mate. Given the given the size and weight of superannuation and housing and all that kind of stuff yeah. these days, those those numbers. Oh, look, very rich. Don't get me wrong. Um, but but not you know like you haven't had to have done. If you bought the right house in 1972, yeah, you're probably officially now a sophisticated investor 50 mm-hmm. years later, mm-hmm. just because you bought a house. Yeah. It's like, well, hang on, that whole thing is just completely screwy. It's just annoying. Um, I don't mind private investors, mate. I think what you know why retail retail was a thing because wholesale was a thing. 
Mm. I think that's that's the idea, right? Is a retail investor goes through a retail platform mm-hmm. to get to an investment product, whereas a wholesale investor goes straight to the the, the platform itself. So it, it actually does again, like a sophisticated investor, it has a it has a specific meaning. It's used for a specific purpose. Whether it's useful to conversations like this one is is an open. Question, I guess right? why it's pejorative is is because it was a label that was created by the industry to yeah. refer to, <laughs> yeah. to to you know to, yeah. to to suckers to, to their Marks. suckers, yeah. yeah, rather than you know it's just our, mm-hmm. our mm-hmm. customers. No, they're they're, they're <laughs> retail. And it gets spoken of, you know, like on, on FinTwit, you know, the term yeah, is used yeah, in yeah, a derogative yeah. kind of way. I, totally. I, I hate yeah. it. I hate it. I hate it. No, and it also suggests that you're out there, there's something, there's some of the consumerism mm. angle mm. to it all. It's just, you know, I hate it. Yeah. No, I hear that. I hear that. Anyway. Mate, Tom, let's- 10 let's minutes get, later. Yeah, let's start. Yeah, exactly. And another thing, a uh, couple, of, couple of bits of, of feedback uh, we got during the week. So I thought I'd share that. Uh, not questions directly, but interesting. CW on Twitter says, hey, Scott, because it's come up a number of times on your podcast, I use CMC Markets to buy ETFs because they have zero brokerage under $1,000 per stock per day. It's the best option I've found with Chess sponsorship. So there you go. Okay. I didn't know that. I can't even confirm that it's true. So as always, do your own work. But CW says that it's true. I have no reason to believe CW will be lying to us, but just for the record, do your own research. But yeah, apparently, zero brokerage under $1,000 per stock per day. If you're buying ETFs, that sounds like a pretty good way to do it. Chess, as long as it's chess sponsored, but it sounds like it is. Yep. Just don't don't be seduced by the CFDs. The, oh, uh, yeah, the CFDs. CFDs. Stay, away, stay the hell away from those things. I hate CFDs. Um, I, so, oh, okay, tangent on a tangent, back to the original tangent. In, in comedy, they call it a callback when you go back to the thing you talked about before. This time it's just me coming back to an old <laughs> ranting issue, so it's not really a callback at all. Uh, I did tweet uh, during the week, uh, speaking of tweets and other things, uh, about uh, exactly this thing, right? I, I think I saw, it was ad for someone, it might have even been CMC, but I don't want to... I don't want to drag them through the mud. Uh, it was an ad for CFDs. Now, CFDs are contracts for difference, by the way, to, to describe the people who are wondering. And they're basically just they're, they're bets, right? It's, it, it should be very, the tab, not, very not leveraged as a bets. Yeah, and it's a straight out bet. It's a straight out, well, it might be up or down by this many points and it's worth this much to you if you get it right. It's, mm. it's, it's just- it's So just you can lose bet. a lot more than you put in though. That's, that's, well, the, that's, the, that's the key part. It's a ridiculous. lot more than you. I think yeah. it's 10 to one or something. It's pretty pretty leveraged. Yeah, and that's, you, but yeah, you're, you are the bookmaker. Right, <laughs> rather than the so you know when you, when you place a bet at the t- at the track, you put your ten dollars in, you either get money back or you don't. Mm-hmm. The bookmaker takes your ten dollars, but he's up for either keeping your ten or for losing a lot. If your horse wins, he's got to pay all that out. Mm-hmm. Um, you're the bookmaker. You're you're on the hook. If this goes badly, you're up for the leverage payout, right? As if you as if you'd provided the odds, which is which mm-hmm. is pretty serious. Yeah, um, mate. I, I was I was tweeting to you. Well, this, and this is the thing about kind of um, uh, terminology, right? So I talked about trading instruments during the week. And someone picked me up on it. It's like, what the hell is a trading instrument? Is that like, what, like ETFs? Like, well, that's a product. The instrument is like the thing you use, like the, the brokerage tool, whether it's a, a stop loss order or a CFD or an option or a whatever. It's like buying um, a banjo at a marketplace or something, is it? Or is that a trading? Right. Well, exactly. Boom, boom. Boom, boom. I'm here all week. Uh, Try the steak. Now, 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 now. It's uh, <laughs> I like the way you choose banjo too, mate. That's like pejorative in and of itself. But I'll let you get away with that one. Uh, I'm I'm a, a slight fan of a banjo. Uh, it's uh, but yeah. So and and my point and this is where it gets silly, right? Uh, the response was the real one, which is like, what the hell are you talking about, Phillips? Mm. And it's both a reasonable and unreasonable thing because you can't describe every single thing. So the category is known as a financial instrument, and it's just that idea of a, a derivative of some description, something that's you know a bet or, or a leverage bet on something else happening. So it's just trading. Stop losses aren't aren't the same, but the same kind of idea. Things that are invented by brokers to make money for them, not for you. Mm. And that was my point. Was you know just leave those. If a broker wants you to use it, very good chance it's a bad thing to do because mm-hmm. you know they, they just want to make money out of you trading, right? And and very rarely is the money made by those doing the trading. The money is made by people facilitating the trading and those doing the investing, mm-hmm. but they're very different things. And so I, yep. you know, it was again same thing. Reasonable, very very reasonable. Um, point being made by by the tutor who said, "What the hell are you talking about? What's a, what's an instrument?" Yeah. But it's like unless you list them all, the category it, it's both it's both useless and useful at the same time as a as a descriptor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Adam hit us up on Twitter as well, mate. He said uh, at TMF Scott P, which is my Twitter, and at Sage underscore Simeon, which is yours. He says, "I love the Friday pod. It was very patriotic. Makes me happy to be an Aussie." Maybe the excess $50 billion, which is what the treasurer found or treasury found, could be spent on education and health as those are the professions that can't work from home. Plus, it's good for our future. Hashtag full on. So I thought that was kind of a, a nice way to, to kind of round out last Friday, not, not, not two days ago, but 
what, nine days ago now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Friday's pod where we talked about some of the work from home stuff and some of the things that were going well and badly and, and how much money that the Treasurer had found. So a nice, uh, a nice combination there from Adam. Nice. You replied, definitely support more... Um, Definitely support more. Uh, definitely more support for teachers and healthcare workers. Mm. That's what you intended to tweet. I've tidied it up for you. Uh, but yes, it's uh, it's it's well worth well worth doing. Well worth thinking underpaid, about. So underpaid, underappreciated for sure. Amen. All right, couple of uh, questions during the week, mate. One from Simon, who says, "Hi Scott, I have what turned into a fairly long question for the Mailbag Podcast, which was inspired by a recent episode where you and Andrew gave your thoughts on the Vanguard Diversified High Growth ETF." The code is VDHG for those following along at home. It is one of the more popular ones among the cool kids in the ETF space. I have a portfolio, says Simon, of global equities, largely comprised of broad-based low-cost ETFs. I love the fact they're using my language, mate. I've worked really hard. Broad-based, low-cost, index-based ETFs, so love it. Uh, He says, also active ETFs and LICs, listed investment companies, and direct shares. Spreading it around, Simon. Whilst investing is a hobby for me, if I couldn't outperform an appropriate benchmark over a reasonable time frame, then I would switch to a passive portfolio and find a new hobby, which I think is super smart. That's exactly what you should do, right? Have a go. Mm-hmm. If you suck at it, don't keep, don't keep sucking. Go and do something else. I think that's right. Like you, says Simon, I track my portfolio on ShareSite and until now have used the diversified high growth ETF as what I considered a pretty decent benchmark to try to beat. Your comments got me looking for an alternative. Noting ShareSite only allows you to use a single product as a benchmark. And I came across the BetaShares Diversified All Growth ETF. All Growth refers to, he says, the fund's asset allocation, not the investment style. And the underlying holdings, according to its website, are currently all in very low-cost ETFs. And they've got 38% in the Vanguard total stock market, 35% in the ASX200, and so on and so forth. Um, being a fairly new ETF, only December 2020, it doesn't yet make for a great benchmark for a long-term investor as there isn't enough performance data. Do you have any better suggestions? Understanding you can only provide general advice, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this idea of an all-in-one, single-trade, diversified ETF. I appreciate this particular product is a fund of funds and the underlying ETFs could be bought directly to reduce the expense ratio slightly, but this would require manual rebalancing and lead to tracking error, reducing the simplicity and potentially negating some of the cost savings. Thanks in advance if my pod- my question makes the cut for the podcast. It did, Simon, and a really, really great question. I kind of feel like Simon's asking two questions here, right? Mm. On one hand, he's kind of asking, what's the best benchmark? But he's also saying, well, it's also, I could just buy it. So I, I, I feel like on one hand, he's saying, what should I use as a benchmark? But also, what should I use to actually invest in as a, as a one-size-fits-all ETF? And it's a, it's a really good question. Talking about manual rebalancing as well and tracking error, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, your thoughts, mate, on, on or just initial thoughts on, on Simon's question. I, I, I think it's, we get a variety of questions and they're mm. all good questions. But, but but sometimes I think, and we're all guilty of this, I think we just overthink things a little bit too much. Yeah, right. You're overthinking it, Simon. <laughs> I mean, it's not a bad question to ask, but it can kind of send yep. you mad and you'll never, there's no objective answer that's out there. There just doesn't. I mean, yeah. I'll give you my thoughts. Scott will give you his. Others will, you know, mm-hmm. just... You, you look at look at all I mean, the mine are right. Yours are almost right, and other people you don't have to listen <laughs> to. But right. yeah, other, other than that, I take your point. But you know, look at the, uh, you go look at all the particularly the boutique fund managers. They've all they all choose a benchmark yeah. which they feel is appropriate. Are they right to? Are they wrong yeah. to? It, it, it comes down to it comes down to preference. Mm. And, mm. You know, it, it's yeah. really subjective, so it's yeah, hard. Totally. And and so it's kind of like I mean, you're right to ask it because if you're not performing some reasonable benchmark, what are you doing? You know, mm. um, you're wasting your time. But I just, for me, for me, it's just like, just use the market. What's the broadest, most general index? And in the Australian yep. market, either the All Ordinaries or the ASX 200, you know, which, mm, which basically mm. track each other pretty. Use that. Use that. Because that's, yep. that's the easiest, safest, most widely accepted one. Yeah. Someone could argue, look, so here I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth. On Strawman, we use the, <laughs> the ASX 300 because it in, incorporates yep. some smaller cap stocks and our, our members tend to err towards the smaller cap companies. So I felt mm. as that was appropriate, but I could have easily yep. chosen the other one and, and both are appropriate and both pretty much mm. move more or less in the same kind of direction. They're, they're, they're sort of directionally similar. So yeah, I, mm. you know, I, I'd, I'd personally just use the, the All Lords unless you've got a small cap bias and then maybe something that's closer matched to that but you know don't overthink it yeah i um 
<clears throat> I completely agree, mate. I so there's a couple of things I'd say. Firstly, um, yeah, we I I had a, a, a every now and again when I promote one or not even promote when I mention or, or support or recommend or like a particular ETF from a particular company, another company will call me and tell me why I should like theirs better. Uh, and the ASX 200 to 300 kind of you know, that that range is often often a key one. That's what my economy says. Well, our tracking area is less than theirs, and so we should you know X Y Z whatever it was. Um, and I think that's you know if you're academically inclined, and it's a bit like we talked about the other day, minimize your tracking area. You might as well do it if you can do it because there's no point having tracking area if you don't need it. So so yeah, someone at a fund somewhere should be trying to do that as a matter of course. Now tracking error, just for those who don't know, uh, refers to the ability of the fund to get exactly the same result as the as the index itself. Mm. And it should be relatively simple, but it's not because you've always got money flowing in and out, you've got changes to the exchange index, you've got different dates and times. So there's always going to be some degree, just that they vary slightly. And these ETF managers spend a lot of time, money and effort trying to minimise that, and they should, right? Because that's their job. Their job is to be as close as possible to the index. So that's, that's, that's absolutely right. As an individual investor, tracking error is probably going to average out. <laughs> because you know, if you have an error on one year, which is plus 0.1, the next year is minus 0.1, or, or even plus 0.2 or minus 0.2 or plus 0.3 or minus 0.3. Uh, not that they're going to average out necessarily in two years. But my point is over time, tracking error is tracking error. And, and, it's, and it's, you know, not mean reverting at all, but the chance you have an error, it's, it's un- unlikely to be weighted in either direction, positive or negative. It's likely to be an error that just it rounds to zero when you, when you have enough years of it. So I would ignore tracking error for, for my purposes. Funds should absolutely try and minimize it because it's the right thing to do. And professionally, they're obligated to do that. They should. Me. So that's what they should do. But you don't need to worry about it. Um, in terms of rebalancing, here's I guess here's the thing, um, Simon. Uh, so the the only I, I actually also track against the ASX 200 RAM. I, I've used a, a just, and there's in in ShareSite. You're right. You've got to choose something. I use the STW, which is is it the iShares ASX 200? I think, I think so. Against. Yeah. Just, it is what it is. It doesn't really matter. Um, and it's kind of it's kind of irrelevant, right? Like it's it's roughly the market whether it's 200, 300. By the way, the Motley Fool when we use our scores, we use the all odds. We use the 500 because mm-hmm. that's a better you know better metric again. Um, so they, you know, there's reasons for doing that. But when it comes to like, my individual investing. Again, as Andrew said, they're close enough to the same thing. And as long as you're roughly in the right direction, then that's probably about as good as you're going to expect to be able to get. I think that's right. I know you want Simon an international benchmark. This is where he's taking a different view to us, Ram. Um, and by the way, we've had a, we had a conversation with ASIC about this a long time ago. I oh, know, no, no, uh, last year. Um, and their, their preference is that the benchmark should match the country you're operating in. That, sorry, that the, the money's invested in. So we shouldn't track an A. We, we have US-based services. And at one point, we tracked it against the ASX, saying, well, you could get the ASX return here at home. It's our home market index. If you're going to beat that by being investing in US stocks, then we want to at least track against what you could do otherwise here at home. And ASIC's view was entirely the opposite, was the US shares should use the US benchmark. And so ASIC's ASIC, so we did. And we made that change, as we should. Uh, but, but you know, I, I personally, for me, uh, we, we don't have a choice for the services. We have to do what ASIC say, and we should. And that's, I have no problem with that at all. But for me, I just use an Australian one for your reason there, that that's our home market. That's our home bogey, if you like. Mm. I could buy that on the ASX right now and get that. And that'd be the easiest, simplest way to do it. So that's what I want to try and beat if I'm going to invest individually. But Simon's saying he's, going to, he's got a whole lot of international stocks and he wants to find a, an all-in-one index that he can track that represents that. Um, I think you've probably chosen the right one, Simon, honestly. Um, but I don't know that... Um, the, 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 sorry, you've chosen the best one rather than the right one. The, the distinction I make there is not, it's not perfect. Because, it's, as you say, three, 38% is in the US market, 35% Australia, 19% developed world, 7% emerging markets, which is fine. But if you're not investing in that same proportion, then it isn't very useful. If you've got half your money in the Australia rather than the 35% that's in this ETF, if you've got 20% of your money in the US instead of the 38% in this ETF, if you don't have any money in developed markets at all, then there's no point tracking this for its own sake. So buying that ETF would be one thing. And I, I had no problem with the ETF as it, as it sits. Um, but I don't know that I'd necessarily track against an index unless your proportions of your own investing were likely to track that. Otherwise, all you're getting is, diff- speaking of tracking error, if you have 15% of your portfolio in, in Australia and they have 35%, that's, that's a, speaking of tracking error, right? That's a, that's a 2x difference. Um, so whatever the Australian market does, you'll, you'll end up with a gap. Unless you're trying to match that, which I wouldn't suggest unless you really think that's the right way to go, then I think it's it, it, it's it's probably the best option because it does exclude things like bonds and property as we talked about last week, um, but it doesn't do enough to my mind to let you compare apples for apples with your own investing unless you're literally trying to do that. So that's how I'd, I I probably think about that one. I don't mind the ETF as an investment. I agree with you, mate. I wouldn't invest in the 
I wouldn't invest in a fund of funds for the sake of it. I'd invest in individual funds because I can and because I want to and because I want to avoid the fees. There's no reason to pay more fees than you have to just because for the hell of it. But it's also not a big deal if you wanted to. If you wanted a one, if you want a one instrument investment strategy, you want to cover those markets and you're happy with those proportions, that makes a whole lot of sense. Mm. But but so, so if it suits you, as Andrew was want to say regularly, if it's right for you, then go for it. Um, I, I would have no problems. If I was only allowed to own that one for the rest of my life, I'd have no issue with it whatsoever. Um, would I choose that specifically? No, because I, I would build my own with some of the things you've talked about. So uh, just just thought I'd, I'd throw it out that way. Um, uh, for, for example, and this is a... Uh, it, it's a beta shares product, right? So you don't assume they're going to have beta shares things in there. You've got the total stock market ETF plus the developed world US ETF. I would just have the Vanguard Global, which I actually own, ETF, which is VGS, right? Just because there's no point in between you have one. Uh, but they're, they're kind of immaterial differences and they you'll get you'll get to roughly the right place in the end. And if you're someone like, the other thing I'm always mindful of around when we talk about this is you and I kind of say, ah, oh, it doesn't really matter. It's not a big deal. A gap's a gap. There are people out there who are just like super, 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 I won't say OCD because that's probably a bit disrespectful and also just a bit, a bit silly, but um, people just want, who want to just love the, love the specificity of this stuff and they, they just get off on it. They want to do it and it's important to them. And if you want, if that's you, go for it. Like I'm not, I don't want to tell you not to do it. I will concur with Andrew that I don't think you need to do it. I think it's unlikely to be meaningfully either additional or, or detracting from your investment return. So I think it's probably just an academic exercise for the most part. But if it makes you happy and you, you feel more comfortable doing it, you feel like you've got more control and you understand it better and you have, as Andrew talks about, you can't borrow a conviction. If it gives you higher conviction in what you're doing because you understand it and you like it and you feel good about it and, it, and, it, and you get extra level of certainty or, or not certainty is the wrong word, uh, comfort or conviction, so conviction is the word I was looking for, then go for it. I think, this, I think it's a perfectly good way to go. Do you know what I do? I um, me. you mentioned the Vanguard chart <laughs> a lot. Um, yes, and what? <laughs> no, <laughs> me. <laughs> um, and what that will tell you is that over very long periods of time, you know, mm, developed mm. markets tend tend to give you something between sort of nine and eleven percent. It depends, yeah. you know, which exact market. So, I basically mm-hmm. say over my investing career, if I get anywhere near ten percent, I'm pretty happy. Because mm-hmm. I'm also doubling my money every seven years. Yeah, and it's yeah. not, you know, I'll. I'll Again, talk out of both sides of my mouth. I think you, you kind of do need to try and outperform the market, but it's not the world's greatest tragedy. If on my deathbed I've gotten nine point eight percent and I could have gotten yeah. ten point one, you know, it's not. Yeah. There are bigger yeah. problems to have, and as I've often said too, I, I think that the, you you've got to find this mm. the the actual endeavor, the journey, as uh, as much as 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 the destination. You know, yeah. uh, it, it, enjoy walking that. You know, I like the intellectual challenge. I I, mm-hmm. I, I like the process. I get intrinsic value from from that, and yeah, uh, yeah I mean, you want you want, it want to be incredibly personally satisfying to underperform the market by eight <laughs> percent each sure year and still still think you're doing something <laughs> sensible. So obviously, it yeah, it makes a difference. Yeah. But that's personally, that's how I think about it. If, if I just I yeah. I, would, I want to sort of get double digits, and uh, the, the the higher the better, obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I want to be ahead of the market, but I I don't really spend that much time thinking about it. No, for sure. Nice one, mate. Hey, here's a second one. Uh, another NASDAQ question, but interesting, or ETF question, sorry, but interesting on this one. And we've talked about this a little bit before, mate, but I I want to, I think it's I think it's worth revisiting. You mentioned on Friday about the Australian dollar. So this is one from PE who says, hi, Scott, I'm an SA member, share advisor member. I have a question for you. Please feel free to use it for the pod if you see fit. We have, thanks, PE. With the NASDAQ 100 ETF, I generally don't worry too much about currency as I dollar cost average into the ETF. Uh, on a regular basis. In saying that, with the dollar at 65 cents, it roughly is that at the time of recording, uh, to the USD, at what point is it too much of a premium to pay with a low Australian dollar? Thanks and keep up the good work. And that's from Pete. So mm. Pete is obviously Pete. Um, we've said many, 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 many times that don't let currency or tax wag the investment dog. And we've used the example of the compound returns you get from investing that are, if you get a three, five, tenfold return, uh, whether or not you get 10 or 15% more or less on the currency is not, shouldn't be a major contributor to the outcome. But I'm going to say, mate, even for myself, and we have, I mentioned, so ShareAdvise, the service that, um, that Pete's a, me- a member of, uh, we have an ASX scorecard with ASX recommendation. We have US recommendations. And we don't take currency into account at all for that in terms of our purchases aren't in Australian dollars or in US dollars so we try we just leave currency out altogether we don't benefit when it goes up and we don't it doesn't cost money when it comes down uh, we just leave, leave that to its own devices and assume that the currency transactions are separate but I have to say at some point uh, the, the, the probability that you are 
well, let, let's make an extreme example, right? 65, so let's say the dollar goes to 40 US cents. Um, I think unless there's something permanent, we talked about, you talked about on Friday, structural versus cyclical issues. At 40 cents, I'm going to assume that the dollar is meaningfully higher than that for most of the future. And at that point, sending money to the US and hoping to get a decent return on it, given that, to your point about the Western markets thing, mm. the average US growth is about the same as the average Australian market growth. Mm. If I'm investing in the US at a time when the dollar is, I'll say almost certainly, I can't give absolutes, but almost certainly going to go higher after that, my return is almost certainly going to be reduced as a result of that. And that means whatever conviction I have in the US investment is going to have to be higher than here. And I hope I'm, uh, it's, it's a, it's, you've got to step through it and I hope I'm doing it in a way that lets our listeners follow along. But I, I will say personally, mate, for my US investing, I'm not sending any Australian dollars over to the US right now. All my money stay in my ASX account mm-hmm. uh, for exactly this reason. And so it's a, it's a really good question from Pete. Well, mm-hmm. I'm curious as to your thoughts. I know we've said forever, don't, don't let currency drive everything, mm-hmm. but there is some element or some rationale to say at some point you've got to at least account for it in a larger way than we have thus far. Or mm-hmm. is there? Yeah. Oh, man, currencies are so hard. They're so Aren't they? hard. <laughs> I'm actually you. quietly. I'm a, I'm a little bit happy <laughs> if I want to look at the lens, th- look at the world through the lens of my own selfish interest. Um, <laughs> you I think do. It's yeah. something like seven or eight out of ten of my investments have significant offshore earnings, right? And so I'm making nice. more money. Well, my companies yeah. are making more money right now because yeah. when they when they send the money back home. Uh, it's, it's turning into a lot more Aussie dollars than it otherwise would. Mm, um, mm, I don't mm. think the market's cottoned onto or really factoring that because it's a bit, a bit of indiscriminate selling out there at the moment, yeah. which is always interesting. But, you know, um, uh, I don't want to name too many companies, but they're just like significant earnings, significant mm, um, mm. amount of earnings uh, offshore and, and in US, USD. So it's yeah. kind of like um, that's one potential way to... I shouldn't use that term. Play it is such a horrible term. <laughs> but 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 think about some companies that yeah. you could buy yeah. on the ASX who have significant USD earnings. Um, yep. You'll be benefiting from from that, yeah. and you, and you're not yeah. you're avoiding the the purchase uh, FX risk there as well. So just another way to think about it. But mm. yeah, mm. I agree with you, mate. I, I think when it starts to get all, all you can really do, I think here is there's two paths. You can sort of take the look on the very long term on average tends to be a mm. bit of a mean reverting um, characteristic yeah. to these currencies yeah. Aussie dollar tends to sort of be somewhere between 65 and 75 on average mm. and mm. you know when it gets mm. to the extremes that that might push you in one direction or the other um, yeah. or you can go right down the rabbit hole of uh, looking at you know comparative advantage within different economies and trying to project the mm, the, the, mm. the direction of these major world economies <laughs> and the demand for their currency. It's just like it's diabolically hard. Yeah, Not even hard. Probably. It's impossible, right? Like it's yeah, just, yeah, it's yeah, super, super, point, yeah. super, super, super tricky. Look at what's yeah. happening. Like just a little bit of a segue. Look mm, what's mm. happening at the moment with like every single currency. The U.S. as against uh, on the USD index, which measures it against its major trading partners is weighted according to you know the amount of business it does is up 25 percent over the last year yeah um every currency against the greenback is is falling let me tell Mm. you how many experts predicted that a year ago (laughs) you know there were some and maybe maybe some of them got it right for the right reasons and others were just lucky but not many not many and if people who do it for a living and are trained Mm. in this kind of stuff can't get it i just I, investing is hard enough without having to put currency forecast on the end of it. So to your mm, point, mm. I probably err to that, you know, roughly right, simple kind of approach is like, mm. generally speaking, it's around that. I'll, 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 I will bias a home, a home preference when, when the dollar is, is relatively weak against the historical standard, mm. uh, vice versa when it goes the other way. But other than that, I don't, I don't think about it too much. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've kind of given my thoughts already, I think, to, to a large degree, mate. I, I really struggle um, to, well, so I'm not sending money to the US. So th- th- there's, your, there's your answer, Pete, honestly, is um, I would happily buy the NASDAQ ETF right now with US dollars. <laughs> um, if I had dividends or sales, I'd happily go and spend that. Um, the, you know, the worst part of this is, and look, it's not, it's not bad, it just sucks. Um, the, it tends to be the case the US dollar is strongest when the share markets around the world are weakest. Mm-hmm. which actually means it's a really, really hard time to go and buy cheap US shares because those things tend to work in rough... Mm-hmm. And, it, and it makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Because, well, I wouldn't, I'm not going to say it makes theoretical sense. What tends to happen is when things are tough, US investors, who are the world's largest capital market 
providers or providers of market capital um, take money home, take money back to the US. And so what happens is that the US dollar rises, other currencies fall. And so at exactly the time when US, the US markets are weakest, um, like for example, so the, um, I think the Aussie dollar fell hard during the COVID crash. Mm -hmm. It did. I know it fell hard during the GFC, for example, like, oh man, all these cheap US companies and we're getting 45 cents to the dollar. Mm -hmm. What the hell? Mm. Um, so it's really hard, right? You can't do both at the same time, which makes it really difficult. And you've got to, you've got to separate the transactions of, of currency and, and uh, well, you don't have to, but you know, there's, there's no free lunch, right? Unfortunately. And that kind of, that's a shame. Uh, by the way, at the moment, if you look at UK companies, now it's not look at UK companies, give where the pound is, but there's a whole different conversation. Um, or UK listed companies, I should say. Uh, so, but I think your point's great, mate, about the, about the US dollar earnings. It's a really, really smart way to play it, really super thoughtful. Um, unfortunately, and, and by the way, and I was saying, unfortunately, and at the same time, a lot of those companies are being thrown out with the bathwater because no one wants growth, no one wants tech. And so you're like, hang on, I've got some tech companies that I've got some you know, US dollar earnings hanging on. That feels pretty good. And I agree with that. I think that's a really smart thing to do. As long as whatever recession happens in the US doesn't damage those businesses and all that stuff. You've got to think about the rest because currency movements tend to come with economic movements good or bad and so just make sure you factored those things in as well but all things being equal a lower dollar is great for those earnings mm. but again when they go up you'll also have the reverse happen so just just be careful with that and that's why over the long term i wouldn't worry too much about the i, I so i'm, I'm going to slightly disagree with you mate not not in the action but just in the sense that you're going to average out over time right so mm. it's like if you get a chance to buy them now because the market hasn't realized and there's a mispricing opportunity that's great don't buy them just because they're us dollar earnings because whatever benefit they get this year if it's already you know if, if the shares are ve fairly valued, there's no free lunch because the, do the dollar will go both ways. Mm. Uh, but if, you're, if you're, the market's missing something, that's a great opportunity. So I agree with you 100% there. Do you know the, the, that meme that has the bell curve on it and on the left, you've kind of got this sort of simpleton and then the top, you've got <laughs> someone making us a really yeah. intelligent sort of comment. And then on the right, you've got like someone in the Jedi robe and they're saying the same thing as the simpleton. And it, <laughs> I have not seen you that. Know, so there's, there's lots of variations on it, and and because you know you can make your own memes easy enough, and yeah, and, right. and it reminds me. I think this has been my personal journey. You know, I sort of start out very young and green, like we all do, <laughs> and you and you you yeah. kind of think, ah, oh, it doesn't really care about that kind of stuff, and then you you learn a little bit more. A bit of knowledge can be dangerous. And you start you start going down some of these rabbit holes, and it's like, oh, actually, no, I mm -hmm. do need to do this and risk adjust and blah blah blah. And you're all very sort of no no, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, very natural sort of conclusions as to all of this stuff matter mm. being of importance. But then mm. I think as you mature even further, and you gain on top of the on top of the uh, knowledge that you gain, you you also gain a bit of depth of wisdom, you mm, actually find mm. yourself back to where you started from. <laughs> mm, mm. But, but actually knowing that, it, that, it, that it's actually sensible. And I've, I've actually come to think of investing like that. So we, we, yeah, we, we see right. it reflected in, the, in, the, in this mailbag episode because people ask really great mm -hmm. questions mm -hmm. and questions that we've all encountered and thought of in the past. Yeah. But yeah. then the older, maybe I'm just getting senile. I don't know. But the older, <laughs> the older I get, well, I'm that part of the show. The older I get, I, I actually yeah. just think I, I I throw away so much of the complexity. Not because it's yep. not important, and I think it's 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 handy to know or at least be aware of some of this stuff. But also because yep. even even if even if what am I trying to say is. Even if you accept the significance of it, there's not much you can do about it. It's the, it's the, is it, mm. is it knowable and important, or is it, you know, unknowable uh, and important? And if, if it's, if yep. it's unknowable, yep. 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 then it's just like, well, I've got, I, I'm just going to focus on the things that I do. And you, 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 you start off the journey reading a few Buffett letters and making some Buffett quotes, yep. Yep, <laughs> you yep, go yep. way down and super sophisticated risk, you know, efficient <laughs> frontiers and, you know. Early criterion oh, and got no sharp ratios. Like, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah, then you come yeah, back yeah, to, yeah. no, I'm just going to buy a good business at a good price. Yeah. <laughs> and you go through that journey and, and you, uh, you know, yep, so it's yep. sort of like, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think about this stuff that much yep. I'm, I'm yep. really just trying to find some really really high quality businesses yep. that that i know will be around in the future and earning more and then i'm yep. holding them at a sensible price i'm not going to be the world i'm never going down in the history books as the world's greatest investor but i'm yep. probably going to have a far less stressful 
career here yeah. and I'm probably going to do pretty yeah. good so far it's been yeah. okay <laughs> you know um, and, and I'll let I'll let the guys in the expensive suits in the high rise <laughs> glass towers spend all day pulling their hair out trying mm. to figure out mm. this stuff that's mm. impossible to figure out and you know it's just mm. life's too short mm. yeah it's, um, it's it's fascinating I I will I will agree with you almost 100% all I was speaking of bell curves is I'll, I'll draw I'll draw a quick bell curve in my head which just says the the lower the Aussie dollar is against the US, the the more the, the better the return I I would hope to get on a US stock compared to the same equivalent Australian stock. Given yeah. I've got a dollar to invest, where I'm going to invest that dollar? <coughs> if I'm going to if I'm looking for let's say I'm looking for double digit returns, if I want ten percent, for example, if there's an Australian stock that has ten percent with the dollar at sixty five cents, I'm going to want 13, 14, 15 percent of the US stock, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. if it's line for line, yep. and we, you're below the average, just just probably you better off you better off not buying what's historically been undervalued currency because it just makes no sense to do. Again, so, yeah. yeah. Given the Olsen. Yeah, I mean, again, it's perfect. it makes perfect sense. But again, what in uh, if I'm investing for a two or three year period, really important kind yep. of stuff. But if I'm investing yeah, yeah. over the yep. next 10, 15, 20 years, and yeah. I'm, I'm buying something that hopefully is going to compound at 10% per That's, year. Uh, yeah, exactly. For, know, for those for that long period. And I buy yes. I buy at at 60 cents and then yes. when the US uh, AU USD is at 60 cents and then I'm selling when it's at 80 cents. Like that you know yeah. percentage wise that makes a difference, but to your original matter. point here, the growth that I have gotten in that asset, I am not going to not invest in this incredible yep. US based stock because I yeah. you know you know, I'll get fifteen percent less than I otherwise would have of the grand yeah. total at the very end of the day. Give me the ten percent compounding over fifteen years. Thank you very much, and I'll take the risk of, mm. of, of a relatively benign and, and, and you know innocuous move over over the over that time. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Now, let's move on to a question from Isamar, who says, Hi, Scott. Thank you and Andrew for providing some confidence in this ever-changing investing environment. Then he says, many experts, I'm not going to name them, uh, largely because, not because I don't want to give them credit or, or, or blame them, uh, but just because we're going to make some comments, I'd just rather not. So Isamar uh, says, many experts um, believe that we are on our way for a global depression, not just a recession in the next five to, three to five years. Many factors contribute to their conclusion, including, but not limited to, the war in Ukraine, which may spill to other countries, the conflicts, economical and perhaps territorial between the US and China, the situation in Taiwan, high inflation, etc., etc. They predict the market will still fall by around 40 to 50% from its current value, not from the peak, in the next few years, and as such, they suggest to reduce the risk by holding cash or gold. My question, at what point... Um, at what point, Andrew? I uh, so I'm just uh, hasn't been written. Uh, at what point do Andrew and you take into consideration the global situation or issues, not just the companies themselves, in reposition in repositioning your portfolios to deal with the increased global risk? Are you reducing or increasing the amount of money you keep adding to your portfolio regularly, uh, or are you just adding as normal? You usually focus on companies, so I think it will be important to explain how global environmental issues may affect investment decisions. Mm. By the way, he says, given the tension between multiple countries and the large investment of governments around the world in military equipment and technologies, should those target be targeted by investors in the next five to ten years, or are those considered unethical investments, he asks. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Full on, Itamar. They are some really good questions yeah, all thrown to together, mate. Lots to unpack. There is, there is. Um, I'll go first. Just yeah, for fun. please go. Right? Yeah, go, go. Um, so, Edema, we've, we've, I don't think you're going to be surprised by this by this answer. I actually think you probably already know what our answer is going to be, given what we've said over the past um, episodes of our podcast. But um, Andrew's talked about things being knowable and important, and that Howard Marks two by two matrix, right? Um, important and not important on one side knowable and not knowable on the other side if it's important and knowable you absolutely should do something about it if it's important and unknowable you're wasting your time if it's knowable but not important then you're wasting your time and if it's not knowable not important then you're not going to know it so there's really only one box of that two by two matrix that's worth playing in and that is is it important yes the things you raise are absolutely important are they knowable well i don't know um i think that well, here's, here's the thing. There are other experts, not the ones you actually referenced, by the way. Uh, a couple of really super high-profile people among investors, people who we would consider perma bears, people who have for 20, 30, 40 years been predicting the next 
big crash. And most of the time they've been wrong and some of the time they've been right. And those who get it right by luck or good management or both end up being quoted for the Neural Rubini, Dr. Doom, is still being quoted now 14 years after the GFC, right? I'm not entirely sure he predicted the COVID crash, by the way, uh, and probably didn't predict this one, maybe he did. Either way, he's getting wheeled out every time someone wants a, wants a quote because he's the guy who was most closely associated with calling, in quotes, the GFC. Uh, there are other authors, again, I'm not going to name him, uh, who's written a book a year on how the next crash is around the corner. And it never, never comes, right? Or when it does come, as Andrew said on Friday, uh, just to happen to turn up yes well he was right because he kept saying the same thing until it finally happened was he was he right maybe was he right for the wrong reasons probably and overall even being right he's cost people way more money by being out of the market than in the market or as Morgan Housel would say more money has been lost by people trying to avoid the next crash than in the next crash so my view is pretty clear I there are always reasons to fear those reasons always seem very reasonable and very based in reality and with very possible outcomes. You don't listen to someone who says the world's going to end because the Martians are going to turn up tomorrow morning, right? But when someone says, well, the pound's at a low, at record low, that must mean something, mustn't it? And we all go, oh, maybe. And there's a war in Ukraine. That could spread, couldn't it? Oh, yeah, I guess it could. All those possible downsides take away our attention. I'm reminded that when you read the newspaper, you read about the bad stuff that's happening as single one-off events right now or yesterday. What you don't read is the headline should be every single day. The world got incrementally better yesterday because that's the big story, right? But it's not a single event. It's not going to get the clicks. You can't interview someone and there's no photos of the world getting ever so slightly incrementally better. But if you look back at the history of democracy, of capitalism, of the stock markets, of all of those things. And again, remember, so here's the, uh, this is a long answer, mate, but take, take yourself back to 1938. There is war on the horizon. There's going to be a war with Germany. Uh, it's going to be terrible. I would say to you going, is there? I don't, maybe. Sounds like it. Maybe not, though. Uh, I don't know. And there would have been a war. You said, see, I told you. The stock market in the US actually went up during World War II. Over the period of World War II, the stock market closed higher than it started. Now, we won the war. That helped, obviously. But the point of, you know, a really big thing could happen and it really could suck. I mean, so many people died, so many houses destroyed. I want to make a lot of this, right? The human cost of World War II was stupendously awful, just awful. Uh, and I don't want to suggest that money is more important, the markets are more important. They're absolutely not. But the fact the markets continued to exist and trade while the war was happening, for and after the war as well, meant that, even if you'd been right about that forecast, you still would have missed the opportunity to make some money. And that was when the war actually happened. Now, we talked on Friday about the Chinese housing crash that never happened, or the Chinese foreign currency crash, or, or currency, I was supposed to run out of foreign currency, which also never happened. The COVID crash that no one predicted, which actually did happen, um, and so on and so forth. The, the, the thing about um, crashes, often, not always often, um, I'll bring up the Steve Keen example again. Sorry, Steve. Uh, I know he's listening. He's not really. Uh, who said, you know, he expected a housing crash. And when it didn't happen, he said, well, it would have happened if governments hadn't done anything, which is kind of the point. So the fact we know these things are possible actually makes them much more likely to, unlikely to happen. Or like with the COVID thing, government response actually made what could have been a catastrophically bad economic situation actually end up being an almost a net positive or at least not a particularly big net negative economically. So bottom line, mate, these things could happen absolutely. They're all things to worry about. We could have had the same conversation two years ago, five years ago, 15 years ago, 24 years ago, 72 years ago about things that could possibly maybe happen. And there would have been very reasonable conversations with serious people who had a good chance of being right. But sometimes the market falls, sometimes it doesn't. Well, firstly, sometimes the event happens, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes the market falls, Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it falls and then comes back before we have a chance to respond, like the COVID crash. Sometimes it doesn't. And those are all the short-term games that we can play with ourselves. And we kind of feel like we should. I will remind people just to take half a step back. And yes, I'm going to mention the Vanguard chart again. I don't care. Um, and say, that's what happened anyway. That's what happened anyway. And so you can play the short-term guessing game. And I'm not just, I'm not having a go, mate. You're right to ask the questions and it's, you're right to be scared by what the way, the way they, what they say and the way they say it because they make a really convincing case. Um, or you can play the second game, which is back the long-term 
prospects of capitalism and democratic capitalism in particular. Now, if you are someone listening who is in or near retirement, please have enough cash you should, anyway, not because of this, anyway, at all times, to cover your living costs if share price volatility is going to mean you can't pay some bills. Uh, because that's just crazy not to, right? So do that, please do that. Other than that, even if you are retired, money you don't need for the next five years, I would be very happy if your if your risk tolerance and uh, living needs, goals and objectives, all the stuff that, that finance advisors have to say, if they're all covered, I would be invested because over the long term, markets go up. And unless, as I've said before, 2021 was the peak of human ingenuity and the peak of capitalism, the peak of the Western civilization as we know it, there are better times ahead. They just are. Uh, and so I would happily, I am happily. So, so to answer your question directly, I am adding absolutely as normal. In fact, if I had any extra cash now, it would be absolutely happily deployed in the market. Not because I don't know this is the bottom, but because I'm getting offered a discount on a whole lot of companies because of these things that I think are short term. And that's the very, very best time to be buying, even if there's a crash coming. Even if I could have bought it cheaper price in six months time, in five years time, I'm not going to be disappointed that I bought today is my very strong conviction. Hmm. Andrew? Yeah, I, uh, I... Sorry, it was a bit of a rant. No, no, it's... Oh, God. I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm... <laughs> I'm going to again speak out of both sides of my mouth. I'm, I'm pretty nervous too. I don't usually follow the macro scene too closely for mm. all the very good reasons that you describe. Mm. But it seems it seems as though, for the, to use a horrible word phrase, uh, it feels a bit different this time. Oh no! Yeah, you've just yeah. But but, okay. but 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 <laughs> before you before you get too despondent, <laughs> I'm not I'm not I'm not doing anything different because yep. because yep. It, it's it's um yeah right. A lot of these things have been... T- they'll be right eventually. I think there's sort of... Yes. There's a mathematical argument in some of these things. Like something's <laughs> going to come to a head at some stage, just that it might be 10 <laughs> or 20 years down the track, or it might be tomorrow. I don't I don't know. Yeah. So there's a huge opportunity cost there. I tend to... The way I think about it more is about... I try to make... <laughs> I try to think in terms of the um, Taleb um, anti-fragile kind of um, nice. thinking, where I want a portfolio of businesses that are just no matter what waters this ship sails into is going to be pretty okay. You know, mm. it's better if there's, you know, nice smooth sailing with the wind at your back. That's fantastic. That's, that's what, but if, if the seas get choppy, this, this boat's going to hold together. Um, mm. That's what I want to, that's what I want to do. I don't want to be invested in things that will do me really well if there are no shocks or surprises along the way, um, but will do really badly if, if, if there is any sort of wobbles. That's that is that is really mm. dangerous. So while I think it's it's yeah, the world's pretty scary out there at the moment. Um, I just I do think there's there's kind of that Tina approach that there is no yeah, alternative. Yeah. Like what else am I yeah. going to do? Um, for a person who's a while away from retirement, cash is just probably the worst possible investment ever, especially in a yeah. higher interest rate environment, which a uh, higher inflation environment, which I think is probably going to be sustained for for a while. Um, so I just want productive businesses and ones that don't have much debt have at least the potential for very reasonable cash flows or on the cusp of reasonable cash flows, um, not not susceptible to any one, you know, I'm not concentrated or exposed to any one particular risk. You yeah. know, it, it's going to suck. I'm actually down a bit over the last year. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if I'm down a little bit more, but when I get cash, I buy I'm not going to make this about Bitcoin. I'm really not. But there's a wonderful saying. You get know, hand it to the Bitcoiners. They say, you know, stay humble and keep stacking. And I think I think it's actually pretty cool. It's a pretty cool. Um, it's a pretty cool mindset that we equity investors can apply as well. Yeah. You know, stay humble, keep stacking. Yeah. You know, buy yeah. buy good quality businesses. Um, yeah. Know know what you can't know. And 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 yeah. I mean. Our message is a really unappealing one because the, you, you can dial into because every 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 man and his dog has a podcast these days, and you'll find others out there who'll telling you exactly how you need to reposition your portfolio. Yeah, to use right. that phrase, and you know some of them might be right. Um, a lot of them will probably be wrong, and it's, mm-hmm. it, it just it's much more sophisticated sounding. It's much more compelling, and you potentially could even make a lot of money if you go short on some mm-hmm. of these things. Uh, people have in the past, but it's just I I am I am. I am just wanting to preserve my long-term purchasing power. And I think the best way of doing that is by being an owner in some really, really great, productive, resilient enterprises. 
Do you know what I love about that, mate, is I think that's that's so smart and you've said it better than I can, as always. Um, what I love about that is you've brought it back to the businesses and I was absolutely missed to do that. I think the fact that we have share prices quoted second by second, six hours a day, five days a week, 52 weeks a year, excluding public holidays, means we kind of feel like we're obliged to take a view. What if share prices are lower at some point than they are now? Mm. Um, then I will feel silly for not having sold. What if they're higher at some point, you know, in a year's time they are now? Well, I would feel silly for not buying. And those are very reasonable feelings to have, right? Because we're taught, told, uh, we experience that being the descriptor of investing. And I made the point earlier, I can't remember if it was today or Friday, about you know, trading versus investing and being really clear that you know, there's trading, there's investing, and, I, and there are artificial descriptions and artificial differences, but investing means investing for the long term. And to your point, if you're a, if you're a long-term investor and you should be, and I've said before, even if you're, if you're 65, you're going to live for 30 years, no probability. Mm-hmm. Actuarially speaking, the people whose job it is to work these things out, you probably get, well, once, you hit 80, once you hit 65, you're, you're a steward for 85 in most cases. And you're mad not to plan to assume that's going to be your future. So you've got a 30-year time horizon or 20-year time horizon. Uh, Investing makes sense. But if you can invest for the long term, as you said, if you've got a business that is going to generate meaningful amounts of profitable cash flow, I know profit and cash flow is different things, but work with me, um, out into, you know, for for whatever period of time into the future, um, in theory, either they're going to be worth more at some future point and or they're going to start paying dividends or keep paying dividends at some future point. And that, that is kind of the story right you can always sell they're overpriced of course you can you can always buy more if they're cheaper and, and you probably should look to take advantage of those if, you, if you're being offered your mr market analogy that andrew likes if you're being offered a, a stupid price in either direction feel free to take advantage of mr markets you know overreactions but the the, the bigger story is actually you know um is i'll use woolies again because neither of us own it if woolies are going to sell more groceries in five years time and, and at a good margin then that's kind of whether they go to shares go $25 or $55 in the meantime is interesting. And yeah, there might be an opportunity to buy or sell if there is something crazy, but to to trade because it might change when you in theory are investing in the business itself and, and the long-term future of that business, we hope everyone is listening to this. It's not just trying to bet on some future share price being a little bit higher than it is today or worried it might be a little bit lower than it is today. Um, I, I own shares in corporate travel management. I own them at $25 before the short case. They went $18. They went to $5, $5.80 or something uh, at, the, at the worst of the COVID crash. They are now back to $18-odd, give or take. Um, I didn't buy or sell them. I didn't, certainly didn't sell them because the share price was moving around. If I'd known, again, if I'd known, of course, would I have sold if I'd known? Of course, I would have. I would have sold it and bought it five and made a fortune, right? Of course, I would have. But we can't know. And... The story is still, I think corporate travel are going to have a bigger, better business in five years' time. In fact, they went from 18 to 5 back to 18. It sucks, but it is what it is. And, you know, I'm, I own them for the same as I own them for the day before the COVID crash because I think they they have a long-term, you know, they have a bright long-term future. I think that's – and I'm only saying what you just said, mate, and again, as usual, long, longer and with more verbosity. <laughs> uh, but that, that's a, it's, a really, it's a really important point. If you yeah. focus on the business and you should be, then who ca- I won't say who cares what happens to the price because it's emotionally draining. It's emotionally taxing. It is. I get it. This is where you got to give um, the the, prop- but, you know. the property investors get get it more, right? So yeah, yeah. And and, and never thought I'd hear you say that. <laughs> well, I think the psychological. I think I always get I always get misunderstood with property. I, love, I think I think <laughs> land and property is one of the best assets you can own. Period. You know, it just is. But but like anything, you can overpay for it. That's that's a separate discussion, which I'm not I'm not going to get get lured into. But where the property investors have a huge edge is that they they they're not obsessing over these things and they're not because they don't have it rubbed in their face. And I've, I've often, I've, it wasn't me who came up with the metaphor. I forget who it was originally, but it's such a great one. Imagine if every day an auctioneer came to your house and a bunch of people gathered and, and they bid on your house. I mean, your house would go up and down yeah. by tens yeah. of thousands of dollars yeah. every single day and you would be, your stomach would be in knots. Now, the, yeah. the house is the house is the house. And you're actually getting utility out of that. You get shelter over your head. Or if you're, it's an investment property, you're getting a, a stream of income off, off the back of that. You know, that, that's not changing on a daily basis. And that's the way you've got to look at it with these assets that you own. They're not these tickers that just get traded. Well, they are. <laughs> They're things that get traded every day. But underneath it, there's actual real-world business producing real-world cash flow, real-world utility. Now, it's your job as an investor to identify mm. with the general trajectory of that and what's a reasonable price to pay. And that's a whole other kind of thing. But that's very different to them to you know whatever happens between China and Taiwan, mm. it doesn't mm. massively impact the ten year outlook for 
any of my companies. <laughs> it just yeah. doesn't. Yeah. Everyone's yeah. going to be yeah. very scared when that goes down, and rightly so. That's something we need to be worried about. But mm. but it mm. doesn't it doesn't it doesn't change any of that kind of stuff. And you know, mm. because I can't predict it, I'll just keep stacking and I'll stay humble. Mm. Love it, mate. Uh, with the exception of the Bitcoin reference, which I'm happily going to edit out of this podcast when we finish recording. No, I, I do have a fair bit of that just... as well, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> mate, one to finish off on. Let's try and make this one quick because I am mindful we go too long, but I wanted to cover it from Alex, who says, Hi, Scott, I've got a question for your mailbag in relation to debt and rising interest costs. As we've all heard, Munger's quote, that one of three ways to go broke is the use of leverage. I don't know that specific quote, Alex. It might be the um, Buffett quote of the only way a smart man can go broke is leverage, but it might, maybe there's three ways to go broke. I'll check that one. Anyway, Alex says, so coming into a higher rate environment together with a recession, the risks of some companies going broke is heightened compared to the last 10 years. I think that's absolutely true almost by definition. A lot of companies do look cheap, he says, but I'm not taking in the full risk of rising debt costs with certain businesses. I want to understand at what point does debt on a company's balance sheet go from a good use of capital to something to watch to a big red flag to avoid. For example, I suspect analyzing the impact of debt on a mature business that is profitable and steady cash flows is quite different to debt in a current loss-making, growing, quotes, tech, end quote, company. Are there certain debt-to-equity ratios or interest coverage ratio thresholds that you use when you are considering investing in a company? I suspect the thresholds are different when companies are at their different stages of maturity. Perhaps you could contrast the level of debt in, say, a dares with debt in a small cap like Trajan Group Holdings. Thanks in advance, full on. And that's from Alex. Mm. Mate, I went first before. What do you reckon? <laughs> it depends. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, when does it depend, and why does it depend, and how does it depend? Well, it, I, I mean, I don't, I don't like the use of arbitrary rules. So mm. something mm. like a Sydney airport or a transurban. Uh, mm. To pick two examples, probably well can and probably should have a mm. have a reasonable amount of debt because mm. they're just you know COVID notwithstanding, which is you know maybe, <laughs> maybe we can call that a black swan to mm. some degree. Mm. Um, have such rely have, have such real hard tangible asset backing and have such mm. reliable cash flows that you can actually service that really reliably. And we actually saw um, that play out during the during the GFC. You know, mm. neither of the, those companies are both worth more um, throughout that period, despite having a lot of debt. And yet there were companies that had far lower debt, if you wanted to measure on a debt to equity basis, that got absolutely wiped out. Because yeah. when the tide went out, they just cash flows just disappeared. And they, had, they just couldn't service it. And they became forced liquidators. And it just, it becomes very, very bad. So, so uh, and even with, even with a, 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 a you know, um, a, a pipeline company or something that again is very asset heavy and very reliable in cash flows. You still can have too much debt, so it, 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 yeah. there is a point of too much. But I think yes. what you want to do is it's like again, let's let's use the house analogy again. Is it is it reckless to borrow money to buy a house? No. Uh, well, is it reckless to leverage up ninety five percent to buy a house mm. that is producing a negative cash flow against your interest repayments? And when you are a contractor with a very highly variable source of income, yeah, that's stupid. Yeah. Is it is it reckless to borrow, you know, seventy percent? And I happen to be uh, a nurse with a very reliable um, form of income, and um, uh, yeah, if it's an investment property, I'm I'm getting a very positive flow of, of, of funds on that, and a very reliable I can very reliably rent that out. I mean, there's all of these considerations. Yeah. So it's sort of yeah. that yeah. that's the that's the way I, I I would look at it. I think. Rather than I try to ask, it's always good to do what you might call stress testing and just ask the what if, you know, what, have a look in the notes. No one does this, by the way. No, uh, <laughs> look at the notes of the financial statements. What's, what's the terms of the debt? They'll spell it out for you. Mm. How long is it for? What's the maturity? What's the interest rate? What are the debt covenants around that? What has to go wrong? And then ask yourself how likely that is. Um, you know, it mm. could be a dares like, um, uh, I've, I've got a, very small amount of it, Des, I should say, just uh, as, as I do too. full disclosure. Yep. Um, yep. Um, but I'm, I'm under no illusions. I mean, that's, that's a discretionary <laughs> retailer. I mean, hybrid, yeah. if, we, if we get into tough times, and I think it's probably more likely than not, they're, they're, they're very likely to suffer um, a fall in their revenue. And they've got a fixed cost base. And so you tend to have a bit of net operating leverage working against you there. So I, I, I personally think, A, it's sort of a bit in the price, and, and B, the, the level of debt's not too onerous, that it's not a, not a huge problem. But that's, I think, the way you, you want to look at it. Um, yep. I'm rambling at this point. What do you think? 
mate, I'll, I'll try and uh, I'll try and summarise my thoughts. You've, you've covered most of my thoughts, which is which is perfect. Um, so let, let's start with the 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 key question here is the debt and the debt repayment requirements relative to the level of comfort you have with the consistency of the company's earnings. So that's a lot, bit of a wordy way to say it, but if if profits are going to be volatile or, or maybe even non-existent, uh, or you don't know. You know what? The, if they're if they're a discretionary retailer with with super exposure, as you said with the dares, mate, to super exposure to, to an economic cycle, right? What might be a, a manageable amount of debt in the good times might actually be an unmanageable amount of debt in the bad times. We know that has happened before. Mm. Um, so you know, keep keep that in mind. But that's kind of that's almost that's almost the only answer you need is the the level of comfort you have with the reliability and the lack of variability of a company's earnings the more debt they can probably deal with. Telstra is a spectacular example, mm. right? Even if even if Telstra loses customers, it's going to lose customers at a fraction of a percent per year for a very, very, very long time because telco customers are pretty sticky. And so as long as it can cover its debt, I mean, you know, so let me finish that thought. So as long as it covers its debt, then, you know, there's a very, very little chance debt becomes an issue for Telstra. Uh, if you are, an, uh, you, to use your example, Alex, an unprofitable tech growth company that has six months less of cash left uh, and a lot of debt and getting close to earnings, you go, well, that sounds like it's a pretty scary thing and I'm not sure I want to invest in that company. Um, and that's, you know, so that's kind of, and again, it, 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 isn't it depends answer to, to, to Andrew's point. I would not use ratios, Alex, because that's actually likely to get you into more trouble than save you because you only use historical financials. If I used, I can think of a good example of business went broke with too much debt, mate. It was it ABC? It was probably the most recent big one, but whatever it was, mm. um, let, let's pick a, let's pick, let's, let's pick a dares, right? Let's say, actually, no, I won't use dares because it's a bad example. Well, um, I'm actually looking at it right now. They got hundred and right. almost $120 million debt. The one, one tranche expires July, 2023, the other in July, 2025. It's the right. bank bill swap rate plus about 2% or so. Yeah. Um, so, the, now, the, so you yeah. can work out the interest on that, and, yeah. and you can yeah. um, and you can see from again just scrolling up. I've got to do this; it's hard to do uh, on the fly. Hmm. But I can scroll up and I can see there, there. Uh, where are we here? So last year they made what five hundred and seventy odd million dollars in yeah. in sales, um, and three hundred eight million in in gross profit. There's a, there's a bit there to cover. Some interest expense, I guess I would say. Right, right. Even accounting for a bit of a knock and in in sales. Now let's use a, let's use a high cost mining company, right? That has does iron ore, but its cost of getting iron ore out of the ground is sixty five dollars a ton. Now, if the price falls to forty dollars a ton for an extended period of time, they're going to start eating into whatever capital they've got while they wait for the price to rise again. And during that period of time, if that's an extended period of time, or the price drops further, or something else happens, they are they are racing the clock. Because if it stays too low for too long, they run out of cash. Maybe they can't meet their debt repayments. Um, Santos actually was pretty close to this not long ago. They had to raise massive amounts of capital just to shore up the balance sheet. Mm. So that sort of stuff is what can happen. So in that case, if I couldn't be sure of a level of profitability and I couldn't be sure how long that level of profitability would be impaired for, then I, almost any amount of debt is too much. Right, because as soon as you dip in a negative territory, you are literally racing the clock. Mm. Uh, and so that's, that's where I think... You know, your comfort with the reliability of the profitability or the profits uh, and that compared to the amount of debt or even just the debt repayment, Andrew, to Andrew's point about, you know, look at the interest cost. You get the interest cost, by the way, on the on the, um, on the on the P&L. So one, two quick additional thoughts. One is interest costs are going to go up yep. in the future. And you made that point, Alex. So just, again, that's why historical financials aren't super, super useful. Um, I'd also, I'd, I'd try, and, try and just think about the range of outcomes based on the business. So... It's Adair's. What if Adair's profits fall? What if the interest costs increase? What might that look like? Okay, that still feels okay. Good, I'm okay. Um, it's Telstra. It's going, you know, whatever, whatever. Or it's a, it's a minor. Okay, well, what if the price falls? So that's sort of stress testing that Andrew talked about. The other thing I would say is, this is there's no good answer to this one because it's hard to know. Nobody thought Webjet would have to double its share count in 2020 because it ran out of money, right? COVID was a thing that no one was expecting. Now, could we have, should we have? I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, I'm still not convinced we should have expected it because you expect it for 100 years. You end up with the Kiyosaki stuff that we talked about on Friday where you, you spend your time saying, well, this could all go wrong, so I shouldn't invest in anything just in case there's a some calamity. Um, so I don't, you know, I guess my point there is we, Andrew and I would have used, probably, I think, I would, I'm sure I would have used Transurban 
as an example of a business that was bulletproof based on cash flows and debt. Of course, it can have a lot of debt because, you know, it's a toll road and cars get on toll road every single day. What's going to stop them? Nothing. Of course, nothing's going to stop them. And then COVID is like, oh, that, that's what it was. Um, so you expect the unexpected. Uh, be diversified. Uh, if you are going to have companies with debt, I would also say make sure in your portfolio you have companies without debt um, or at the very least a very different exposure because Sydney Airport and Transurban and Webjet all at the same time felt like, I guess they're probably all travel companies in one way or form, so probably a bad example. What I mean is different companies that wouldn't otherwise seem to be exposed to those things sometimes are. And just be diversified in your portfolio so that if the unexpected or, or unforecastable, unpredictable literally happens, at least you're in you're in some sort of shape to to get through it as a, at a portfolio level. I would also ask too, just what is the debt for? There's some companies just mm. run on a leveraged basis to help sort of juice yeah, returns. That's true. In the case of Adairs, not to make this all about Adairs, um, it's a really <laughs> tiny position. But anyway, well, um, the the uh, use there was to uh, help with the, some acquisitions. So some, yeah. and and they with their cash flows, the intention is that they'll be able to pay that down relatively quickly over the coming years. Maybe that doesn't play out as expected, by the way. But hey, welcome to investing. That's the <laughs> that's the risk <laughs> that 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 we're that we're kind of taking. And it does get looked at always, I think, too often as a negative. But but debt, I think, is actually a very attractive alternative to equity in some cases. Equity is forever, as our friend and co- yes. former colleague Joe Mega used to say. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, we can have a clean balance sheet with no debt on it whatsoever, and you can fund your strategic ambitions by raising a lot of extra money. But that just dilutes yeah. you as well. There's there's yeah, no free correct. lunch here. Debt debt on a company that is making a very very sound investment that's likely to deliver very solid cash flows is actually much better off, particularly if you're doing it yeah. in an environment of really, really low interest rates and you're able to secure really f- favorable funding terms. Go with the debt, for goodness sakes, you know, mm-hmm. as long as it doesn't put you in a precarious uh, position that this slightest little wobble can knock you out. I, I actually I actually think um, that's, that's something that we should be a little bit more um, uh, tolerant of. It's, it's not always, debt is not always a four-letter word. I, yeah, I, I agree, actually. I think it's... it's And again, you've got to be careful trying to eliminate risk, right? Because that's actually that's actually potentially... I'm not saying take silly risk. I'm not saying buy companies with too much debt because, again, we've seen them go broke. Like, I, I'm absolutely not saying that at all, nor is Andrew. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I think trying to avoid every single possible risk means you're in cash. Yep. And so take a level of risk, diversified risk that you're comfortable with, based on the fact that most companies will use debt well. And, you know, if Adair's managed to make this transaction work then they will have created value for shells by taking on that debt mm-hmm. and even if they get it wrong but 10 other companies got it right on balance you still okay it's still a good strategy to invest in those businesses um so just be careful about avoiding all of the potential bad stuff if it means it takes you away from too much of the good stuff yeah and on that note mate i reckon we've done we've gone over time as we always do but uh <laughs> thank you for spending some time with me mate. i've thoroughly enjoyed our chat as always i'm sure our listeners have as well uh, if you want to get in touch with us make sure you do that info info at fool.com.au as our email address uh just let our member services team know it's a podcast question otherwise hit us up on the twitters i've already shared those at tmf scott p at sage underscore simeon or our corporate ones at strawman invest or at the Motley Fool AU. Look me up on Facebook or Insta as well. And until next Friday, full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under Financial Services Licence 400691.